Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, welcome to the Driven Celebrities podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to download and listen to the show. Just a quick intro from me because we're going long with not one but two of our guests today. In other words, we'll be able to play you more content than we were able to put out on the radio show. So the two guests we're going long with today are Jeremy Vine, fantastic broadcaster, absolutely fascinating bloke. And we just had such a good chat. We thought, well, let's play much more of that chat out here on the podcast. And also Charlie Borman, the incredible adventurer, explorer, presenter, Ewan McGregor's best mate, just all round top guy. Fascinating, fascinating chat with him that again, we couldn't play out in full on talk radio. So we're able to Use this to go long with Charlie and Jeremy. And we also have Harvey Armstrong from Made in Chelsea and the glorious Mr Motivator to close out the show and give you a bit of a lift. So thanks so much for downloading. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, well, it'll be great if you could tell your friends and give us a review and a a nice subscribe and five stars, if you'd be so kind. Anyway, enough from me. Here we go. Thank you. Driven with Andy J. Welcome back to Driven here on Talk Radio with me, Andy J. Now, my next guest, well, he has a book out, but I'm going to tell you he is not most famous for being an author. In fact, he has a huge list of incredible achievements, perhaps best known as the drummer from the Flared Generation. Of course, that's not what he's best known as, but nonetheless, he was the drummer in the Flair Generation. It's Jeremy Vine. How you doing, Jeremy? <laughs> oh, do you know, I love that you, that you picked up on that because that takes me straight back to teenage years in Cheam in Surrey and trying to be famous with a very silly band. <laughs> well, as an ex-drummer myself, I always spot when I see someone used to play drums, I'm like, oh, we'll get on. We'll be good. That's very interesting. Do you know what I've done just in the last year? I have got myself a drum kit for the first time since I was 20, but it's an electric one, so you put headphones on. Now, I don't know if that counts, but it, they they sound amazing now. They sound like real drums, and you yeah. can play without the neighbours taking out an injunction. <laughs> if Well, listen, it counts if it's a Roland. Ah, I, I'm just trying to think what the make is. I'm not sure, but someone says you need to get mesh. Yeah. And mesh is the particular kind of surface. You know what I'm saying here? But it, and it allows the stick to, the, the, the drumsticks to sort of move naturally. And I, I'm, I'm impressed. You can't, we're getting deep into drum territory. You can't do rim shots on a fake drum kit. That's the only thing. Well, you sort of can if you've got a Roland. I'm saying this because I have... Oh. It's going to sound like an advert for that R company now. I'm going to stop saying their name just so people don't think it is. Oh, man, I'm going to get home. I'm going to have to look at the make. I'm worried I haven't got one because the first thing I saw in the instructions is do not, under any circumstances, attempt a rim shot. Wow. Well, I, I yeah. really feel like it's going out of fashion. I've got some V-tones. Oh, man. <laughs> now I'm just disappointed. I've got an inferior drum kit. <laughs> it's, probably, <laughs> it's probably a much better one, and I've just smashed mine to bits. But, but nonetheless, <laughs> it does the job. I have to keep replacing the headphones. But other than that, <laughs> the drums are solid, so we're all good. So, so you and I are both drummers on, on sort of surreal drum kits. That's amazing. I didn't know that. That's great. It's great. I'm, I've got two proper kits around the house as well though you know just because sometimes you need to thrash it out you know what i mean 
Well, I, listen, I would be happy to just talk about drums for 50 minutes because there are things, there are cer- certain things I need, I, uh, techniques that I need to get. Um, but I, I don't know whether we, we need to go in that direction. But there was G- <laughs> Ginger Baker who played the drums with Cream, who's supposedly yeah. one of the greatest of all time. He was able to do a triplet with a paradiddle. And I don't know what that even means. It, it, but I, as far as I can tell, it means that he had the fastest fingers in the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Just and and actually, I imagine they really hurt after a while. Yeah, you know, like ten. Yeah, years I ago. think when you go to a different level, and the guy, the Led Zeppelin drummer, is an example of this. Um, John Bonham, is it? Yeah, it, it's just you, the flow, the noise from his kit, the rhythm. It's it's not structured. When I do it, it's boom, boom, bap, boom, 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 bap. He's playing it like a violin. That's what's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think we'd talk drumming, but I did come This is great. I'm loving this. I've never done an interview about drumming before. <laughs> well, look, we've we got a lot to talk about, but I have to ask, who's the greatest drummer you've ever seen live? Uh, ever seen live? I mean, I, lo- I love Elvis Costello and the Attractions, and I'd have to say Pete Thomas, who plays the drums with them. God, I would, I would be made up if, if I thought that he was listening to this. I think he's a phenomenal drummer. If you listen to the drums in Lipstick Vogue from their second album, this year's model, I think he's absolutely phenomenal. And he, he was kind of the heavy end of blues and stuff before he joined Elvis's band. So I'd go for him. It's a great shout. To be fair, it's a great... <laughs> Do you know, Jeremy, I considered long and hard. I often think about... I, I know you interview people all the time, so this is something that I, you know, I'm not by any means trying to kind of put myself on a similar level to you. But when I... <laughs> When I approach interviews, I try not to plan anything other than maybe the intro because I just like to see where a conversation's going to go. You know what I mean? And this so- is good, but we've already got into the greatest drum of all time, and I'm already regretting my choice, thinking, should I have said Buddy Rich? Should I have said Cozy Powell? You know, I, I, who's yours, by the way? Well, the greatest drummer I've ever seen live, which was the kind of way I phrased it to you, was yes, yes. will surprise you, I imagine, because of who it was, which was Stevie Wonder. Are you serious? Is that right? How amazing. I didn't even know that he got on the drum kit. Just YouTube after we've chatted. YouTube Stevie, okay. Wonder, Stevie Wonder playing a drum solo. It is, and, I've, and I've seen a huge amount. I have studied drummers for a long, long time. Without really? Without a shadow of a doubt, the greatest technician I have ever seen play drums, Stevie Wonder. Hands down. <laughs> Okay, that's truly amazing. I will YouTube that, and you made me think of Phil Collins, which is the one that, which yeah. of course operates in reverse, where you have an amazing band, early seventies. Peter Gabriel, the lead singer, he leaves, famously writes Salisbury Hill about leaving Genesis. The Genesis look around, Mike Rutherford, Steve Hackett, who on earth can they use as a singer? And the drummer says, "Well, can I give it a go?" And and it's Phil Collins, and it's a new band, and it's completely refreshed. I mean, that to me is amazing because the who knew the drummer could sing like that? You know. But they did sacrifice bass which is also a bit of a crime. Did they lose the bass player at that Gen- point, did Gen- they? Genesis had no bassist. Really? What? And, and then there were, I'm loving this conversation. And then there were three, which is the kind of follow-on album, three people as in we don't have a bass player anymore. Yeah. And if you listen to their tunes, you realise there's no bass guitar in there. And you're like, oh. Not amazing. Yeah. Gosh, that's inc- I never knew that. <laughs> I never knew that. This is great. What a, what a wonderful way to start our chat. I mean, the reason why I kind of bring this up is that I was thinking to myself, how do I introduce Jeremy Vine? He's hosted everything. <laughs> you know, IQ through the roof. So many things going on here. How do I say? I know. Let's go right back to the beginning and start with drums. And there we go. <laughs> that's that's what we. Well, it's done. funny. I, I was the the band you mentioned, the Flare Generation, was in a way a little bit connected to News, which became my my 
career, which is that it was that we, we, we were you know, age 14, 15, 16, and we're thinking, how do we get on the news and how do we get attention? And we'd always tried to have bands that were like the jam and like the, you know, the bands who were big then. And then we thought, why don't we do a band that's absolutely useless? It's out of fashion. Everyone's wearing drain pipe trousers. So we called ourselves the flare generation. We wore flared trousers. We were, we were really unfashionable and really rubbish. And the funny thing is it immediately got picked up and it taught me a great lesson about news, which is it's always about the unusual. It's about the incongruous. It's when I was a father of, young daughters my daughter's a teenager now but I, I realized that the way to get their attention is to go in instead of going in with your socks on your feet you go in with a sock on your head and you just say okay who threw this and the kids immediately pay attention and that was the fair generation's lesson was was all about the sock on the head that if you have a band that's utterly out of fashion we got in the sun newspaper and we got on radio one and stuff it was really incredible how easy it was just by reversing everything we thought we had to do that's brilliant what a great you see that that brings me back to my first band and i and i was given a tie-dye jacket as in a suit jacket that had been given the tie-dye treatment to wear and it was awful uh, but i couldn't throw, <laughs> i couldn't throw it away for about three decades but you're the drummer. We just got to do is play the drums well, surely. I mean, what, when, what era were we in here? Who were you competing with? So I, I liked to think of myself as, and this is ironic in a, in a sense because he's now become one of my very best friends, which is we were kind of, we were trying to emulate the Spin Doctors. I don't know if you remember them, but the lead singer of yes. the Spin Doctors, Chris Barron, is now a very good friend of mine. So That's nice. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I get them confused with the, what, I get them confused with the Blow Monkeys, but it's that sort of era, isn't it? Yeah, and so it's sort of pocket full of kryptonite and Two princes and you know all that kind of stuff. That's that got it. Yeah, stuff. they did well. They did do well. Yeah, they're still going. Thirty years later. You know, to me, the uh, the power. I could tell that you're the same. The power of music to me is so profound. I mean, I, what is really awful. I'm not a very good drummer, and I'm certainly not a good musician. And I, I what I can't work out is why a song, somebody else's song, will make me cry, but I can't write a song. And, you know, my brother has an amazing songwriting talent, Tim the Comedian, and he has that. And it's it's people, you either have it, it's just imprinted, or you don't. And I sort of feel very frustrated that it's like you can you can enjoy poetry, but you can't write it. And I'm thinking, what what went wrong there? You know, these. I read the biography of Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, and this guy learned to his dad was horrible to him, banned him from the piano. So he had to learn by watching his dad play. That's the only way he was allowed to learn. Um, and he's an utter genius, you know, and he was doing three-part harmonies as soon as he hit the piano himself. And I'm so envious of that. That's incredible. I mean, so I'm, I'm learning from this, Jeremy. I've got two young boys. Maybe I need to stop them and make them only watch me play Street Fighter, and then they'll be the greatest well, Street Fighter players it, ever. The reason I love punk rock is because my parents hated it. There's no question. <laughs> and now, funky parents in the 21st century, of course my daughters say they like Taylor Swift, so I listen. I say, gosh, you know what? I really like Taylor Swift. I really like Billie Eilish. And, of course, it's fatal because as soon as I say that, they <laughs> drop them. Yeah, they drop them completely. Oh no, that's terrible. Okay. You've got to ban, you've got to ban their music and you've got to say, turn that racket down because otherwise they don't have their own stuff. That's a very good shout. So I've got to pretend I hate the stuff that I think is great. I just think getting alongside them in everything takes space away from them. But yours are younger. How old are yours then? Seven and two. Oh, wow. What a joyous thing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> 
But also, I've got girls and you've got boys. It's yeah. completely different. You've got, you've got. Well, I'm, I'm guessing. I think boys just have so much energy to run off. Whereas, when my girls need to get rid of energy, they sit down and they do crafting. So it's a different thing, you know. They sketch something. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds so much more relaxing, Jeremy. I can't tell you how tired. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. It is. Yeah, but then I do like football. So, I had a little thought when I had my second daughter, and I have said this to her. I just thought, oh, I'll never. And this is a terrible thought, actually. I thought I'll never have a son to take to football. And funnily enough. I take my oldest daughter and we go every, every week. We have season tickets to Chelsea. And I should never have had that thought that, that boys enjoy football and girls enjoy something else because, of course, that's completely pre-scripting, isn't it? Yes, yes absolutely. And, of course, with the rise of the Lionesses as well, you know, there's there's so many... Absolutely. ...for girls in And, it, you know, it's the most bonding thing with my, my eldest daughter who wouldn't naturally be into it, but we go. And then over the summer holiday, we found the time to watch Barcelona against Bayern Munich on the TV, which is the famous 8-2. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was talking about what, how, why is their midfield gone out of shape? And I thought, this is brilliant. It's such a great skill for a 21st century young woman to have to be able to break into conversation about why is Messi not getting the service, you know? Brilliant. Brilliant. And and she's actually seen the greatest ever. So, you know, fantastic. Yeah. Have a have, yeah. An, off, have an off day, in fairness. You know, he didn't get the service, but he wasn't on form himself. Anyway. No, well, exactly. And I think, yeah, exactly. But that's that's the joy of football, isn't it? That it's, it is actually very complicated. It's simple rules. But to work out why was it under Mourinho that the team suddenly stopped playing? You know, we watched it. We couldn't work it out. And it's fascinating. It's, it's endlessly interesting. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, we could dive into this. But I want to pick you up on something you mentioned about how you feel you can't write songs and you can't write poetry. Now, I'm not going to lie, I have dived into The Diver and the Lover. I got <laughs> My book, thank you. Your book, exactly. And I know we've transitioned in there almost, you know, in a, in a kind of Alan. Brilliantly. No, no, fine. Yeah, great. A bit, a bit partridge, I admit, but nonetheless. <laughs> no, I, I love the way you do it. Stop, please don't. There's a lot to be said for it. Well, I got, look, I got handed this thing, uh, which is a, you know, a big old book. There's a lot of pages in here. I got handed it a couple of hours ago, so I haven't been able to get Oh, I didn't realise. Oh, I'm so sorry. You don't, you know what? I've been in your position so many times, so your honesty in saying that is a great thing. I always think that thing that you will have done and I will have done where we look at an author and we think they just mustn't know I haven't read it. Honestly, I don't, it's it's so kind of you to say that. I appreciate it. Do you want me to sum it up for you in, no, 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 in no, 25 because, seconds? Well, no, because what I was going to say is, having only got it a couple of hours ago, I've still managed to get 50 pages in, and which is oh, which, great. which enables me to make this comment, which is you right. saying, oh, I don't know how to write poetry and I can't write songs. However, so much of your language, at least in the first 50 pages, it might change on page 53 or whatever, um, but for, certainly for the start of the book, is incredibly lyrical, very, very descriptive. There's a musical quality, and and. And it's quite um, saucy in some of your descriptions of, uh, of the, the human <laughs> physique as well. Um, I, I do love to write, I must admit. Um, I, yeah, not writing poetry is a separate thing, but I, I've always, I started on a newspaper. I love the written word. I was shocked this week to see a story that said that, that young people regard any text message that ends with a full stop they regard as an aggressive act. And to me, I would not even consider sending one without a full stop. So um, I do I do love to write. Thank you for saying that. And, I, and I've, uh, I, I got into this story, which is the story of a painting, because I used to present a lot of eggheads, and we used to film them in Glasgow. And I got to this point where you go completely crazy, where you've done 65 shows in a fortnight. And I had one day off in the middle, and somebody, there was a question, actually, about Salvador Dali, the painter, 
and the egghead said, oh, one of his paintings is at the gallery down the road. So I trooped up to the Kelvin Grove Gallery on this precious, precious day off, and I can't tell you the feeling of joy standing in front of this incredible painting, of which is actually Christ on the Cross. It's a very famous painting, but the story behind it is really, really unusual. And I sort of go in and say, it all happened in, a, I suppose, a natural way, and I just sort of discovered a story that I, I thought I really wanted to write about. So honestly, if you enjoy those 50 pages, I'm, I'm made up. I am. I mean, without any shadow of a doubt, and I'm, I'm not saying this because I have no vested interest in blowing smoke up your bum. I, I genuinely <laughs> will go and finish this book. I'm. I'm honestly hooked, and it's. It's. it's Thanks, great. Andy, very much. Well, really, it's got. It's got brilliantly drawn characters. I mean, without giving too much away for the audience, you know, on one level, it's a story of, of two sisters effectively getting to know each other with a, a very sizable age gap between them. They're very different personalities, very different characters physically and emotionally. You know, and, and it, on one level, it's them getting to know each other. There's this superstar, Salvador Dali, in the background of everything. And you can see the sort of magnetism that he's going to have and the pull that he's going to have through the story. We've had, a, a you know, the prologue where we... we where you kind of set up the fact that there's this thing that happens in the future, and then we go back in time to, to sort of start the story proper. And, I, I, yeah, I just I need to see what happens. <laughs> Do you know, one of the characters in, in the book who, who really interested me, who, who you didn't mention there, is this stuntman. Now, if you go and see the painting, and the painting itself, you can, anyone can Google it. It's called Christ of St. John of the Cross by Salvador Dali. It's called that because there was a guy in the 1500s called John of the Cross who did a blasphemous thing, which is to do a little sketch, no bigger than a post-it note, of Jesus on the cross, but from above. And you're not allowed in those days to look at Christ from above because that's the position of God. So Dali, in his brilliance, thought, I'll take that little sketch and I'll turn it into a massive painting. I'll double down on the blasphemy. But what he needed to do, and this is what really sort of set my creative juices flowing, was he needed to get someone to hang from the, the ceiling of his studio. And the person he chose was the world's most famous stuntman at the time, a guy called Russell Saunders. And he got him over. And now Saunders had really only done physical things like diving and jumping up and down on Muscle Beach, California. He was a stuntman for Hitchcock. He was in all kinds of different films. He was in Singing in the Rain and stuff. But he hadn't he hadn't really in, in, gone anywhere near the world of Salvador Dali. So I wonder, what is it like that Saunders arrives and Dali, and he thinks he's arriving for a portrait. That's my fiction. And Dali says, you've got to hang from a gantry in the ceiling of my studio because I want to see what that does to your body. And I thought, this wouldn't that be just an incredible collision of two completely different worlds, you know? But for Saunders, it's another job. And then the, the book creates a fiction out of what happens next. Yeah. And I, you know, and it involves a, one of the sisters falling in love with a waiter who, who Dali cruelly uses. I must not say any more. I, I haven't quite worked out the thing of how you say what the book's about without doing a spoiler. So this is a great first attempt by me. <laughs> no, it's, it's really good because I'm now like, oh, hang on. Because Saunders, who you mentioned, that I, I haven't mentioned him because I haven't got to like him yet. You know, we've only... We've only yeah. seen a bit of him so far, and the, the, the ladies have nicked his clothes so far, and that's that's been it, you know. Um, well, the the um, the thing about those stuntmen, and this is not so much the book, but it's the background, is that back in the day, you can't imagine what it was like. Now, I remember, and I looked this up recently, watching a film when I was a kid where there's a classic Cowboys and Indians thing, and they're all chasing, I think the so-called Indians, as we would have called them back then, were chasing the Cowboys who were in a stagecoach 
and a, 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 one of the pursuing Native Americans jumps onto the front horse in a, in a cavalcade of six horses and falls between it, goes under all the horses and under the stagecoach and out the other end. So I was thinking, was that Russell Saunders? Now, it wasn't. It was another stuntman called Yakima Canute. And you can see that these in the early days, these guys were just keen for the work and there was no health and safety. <laughs> So they would just do anything. And some of those early stunts, we will never see their like again, those people. And I became really interested in Russell Saunders and what he did. You know, I mean, his first thing was to jump off a 60-foot bridge for Alfred Hitchcock wearing handcuffs. So they, they wouldn't do that stuff now. They do it or it all be CGI now, wouldn't it, I'm sure. Well, I would, I would vouchsafe that you're right with the possible exception of Tom Cruise, who just loves to do everything himself, so we're told. <laughs> yeah, well, I want, but I wonder, because one of the things the stuntmen got used to was the the stars saying oh i did all the stunts myself i'm not suggesting this is tom cruise but it was a cl- and they would they'd have to sit in the sidelines these poor guys wouldn't even have their names on the posters but in the, and if you go to the kelvin grove and you look at this incredible painting by salvador dali you actually have to follow the wall round to a spot behind you to find the tiny little plaque that's the size of a cigarette box that says oh the guy in the painting was actually russell saunders so yet again the stuntman is overlooked so i think i might belong to the stuntman's union if there was one you know <laughs> But then, but then you have the likes of Charlie Chaplin, who did all his own stuff, didn't he? I mean, it's yes, yes, it's true, it's true. And it's funny, you, what you, you, as you look around this period of the twenties and the thirties when Hollywood was starting, and it was just such a different era. I just discovered the other day that um, the Golden Gate Bridge, when it was built, they started to lose people who would fall off while they were building it, and it's seven hundred and fifty feet to the river, so it's like hitting concrete, so they would die. So they thought we're going to put in a, a safety net. That was the first thing that occurred to them: is maybe these guys should have a safety. Net. So they put in a safety net and they have people fall into it. And the people who fall into the safety net think, well, this is a bit of a thing. We almost died. And they form a club called the Halfway to Hell Club. And they meet every year for the rest of their lives. I thought, oh, good. That's a, that's a great that's a great subject for a novel, that is, isn't it? Oh. I know the halfway to hell club, isn't that brilliant? It makes you know that makes the hell the hell's angels sound like wussies, doesn't it? It's like yes, I know. Because for a second there, they think they were dead because they wouldn't be expecting the net at all, you know. Wow. Which which actually, for some reason, because there's so much art going on in our conversation, kind of makes me think of Eve's climb, jump into the void. You know that that the, yeah. Do you know what I mean? That kind of fall, yes, just falling it, images that he's 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 photographed and painted. Yeah. Well, it's. Isn't it funny, that thing of falling and thinking you're gone, and there was that guy, oh, you'll remember his name, who who did a parachute jump from the edge of space, Felix, and it was the height. Baumgartner. That's it. Baumgartner, yeah. Not yes. yes. And, and the, the previous guy to attempt it had died, you know, and he, and and I, what on earth was, was that like, you know, the you idea know, that you're actually dead for a second? I had a conversation with the lady that produced the the TV show that, that accompanied yeah. that jump, you know, that, so she had rigged everything and done all the tests, etc. I saw that. And I remember her saying to me that I think it was something like 48 hours before he was he wasn't going to do it. He, he just he had yeah. that, that mass attack of the nerves where I can't do it and still managed to conquer his fear and and do the, the you know the unthinkable it was incredible isn't because there's a whole collection now I think we, that film what is that now here's another great question is that bloke who does the free climbing in Yosemite and goes up the sheer face 
of the one of the I think El Capitan in Yosemite or whatever without any ropes or anything that was incredible and then of course there's the man on wire who yes, you know yes. Philip Petit who goes between the twin towers on a tightrope so all of these people fascinated us I guess and you know the in, in my book I suppose I think that if you're hanged crucified in Dali's studio for a painting you are going to be in a life or death situation back in the day. You really would be. And would it be worth it? That was my thought. Would it be, if that was me and he was hanging me from the studio and I knew my life was in the balance, would I think it was worth it for the painting? I, I don't know. I might. Would you, but would you be thinking about the painting at that stage or would you, thinking, or would you be thinking about the paycheck and the recognition? Well, here's the incredible thing. When Dali finished the painting, there was a guy called Tom Honeyman, and Tom Honeyman was the head of the Kelvin Grove Gallery in Glasgow. And Tom Honeyman was really obsessed with Salvador Dali, and he went over and begged him to sell him, Honeyman, a painting for the gallery. And Dali was a little bit unsure, but he said, you can have this one if you want for 12 grand. So 12,000 pounds for Christ of St. John of the Cross. The... Honeyman said, I can't, I can't get £12,000 past the board because it's 1951. So he knocked him down to 8200 So Honeyman bought this painting for 8200 There's then a massive row in Scotland where people say, you know, hang on, why couldn't you spend the money on art by Scottish artists, etc.? Honeyman is really a bit shattered by it, and three years later is, is driven out of the job he loves. In the last 12 months, the Spanish government tried to buy the painting for 80 million pounds. So that's quite a good purchase by Sir Tom. It really was a bit unfair that he lost his job over it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that would buy you half a messy at this stage. <laughs> I know, and I, think, I reckon it's worth more than 80 million as well, I must say. <laughs> yeah, well, I imagine so. That's a heck of a deal. I mean, obviously, 8,000 pounds back then would have been a fair chunk of change, but not 80 million. No, I, I, I think, but I guess the point is that no one at the time in 19, well, this was, he bought, yeah, he bought it in 51. Dali died in 1989. Uh, it's only after the artist dies you get a proper appreciation, I think, of was he great, was he great or not. Mm. And, and I think that that's probably what sped up the valuation in the last 20 years. You know, think, and, and of course, all these art, purchases now they're all into where is the new damien hurst how can we buy what they're doing before they become so famous and it's i i would never be any good at that i don't think well the frightening thing is they're probably on tiktok do you know they probably are and even david hockney has used an ipad for an exhibition where all all the sketches came off an ipad so we we shouldn't look down our noses at it and i always rem reminded that van gogh only sold one painting in his whole life Poor guy. Yeah, 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 seriously. Wow. For a lot of money or for, ver for virtually nothing? No, for, for a pittance because, because at the time he was just that crazy guy, you know, with, uh, with one ear. So I think he, um, I mean, I, what, some of these people, if they could see now how they're regarded, you know, if even, I, I, do you know what, with, with my book, with this, this idea of the stuntman, I don't think Russell Saunders, he died in 2001, he didn't marry, he didn't have children. I'm not sure how much time in his life he spent thinking about this funny old painting that was on the wall of a gallery in Scotland. I don't know whether he even looked at it in the gallery itself. I don't know whether anyone, if you asked the, quick, the eggheads, the, the best quizzes in the country, who's the stuntman, who's the model for Dali's Crisis and John of the Cross, they wouldn't know. It's, it's really not a well-known fact. But, but I, was, I, I thought to myself, I'd love to 
contact anyone in his family to just say, I've written this book and he's the central character. And how crazy would that be? I think he's got great nieces and nephews who are in Canada because I've found them on a, a heritage DNA site, you know. And I haven't had a reply to them yet. <laughs> yeah, as you do, as you do. So I looked yeah. him up and then it's, it's they're all the Saunders and whatever. And whatever. But, but, you know, it's, it's so many steps removed. And you think to yourself, if you put yourself back in the life of this stuntman or Dali or whatever, imagining how they're thought of after they're dead. Or Van Gogh is the classic one. Imagine if you told him that with the money from one of his paintings, you could buy a small village, you know, and feed everyone in it for 100 years. He would just be just incredulous. It's mad, isn't it? It's such a It is. It really is. Yeah. Really strange. And and to think, Jeremy, I, you know, one of the questions I was going to have, given you're, you're one of the sort of busiest broadcasters on the planet, is how on earth <laughs> have you had time to write this book? But by the sound of things, you've had time because you're so passionate about the subject. Yeah, passionate. And also, I, I mean, I was there was a period where I was, um, I'd stopped doing the egghead. So actually, funny enough, I thought, okay, I'm going to have a bit of time there. And I started it. And you're right. I think you, if you have the passion for something, you can find the time, I think. And actually, writing is a great relaxation. The problem with writing, you discover, is once you, at some point, someone says, okay, you've now got a deadline. And at that point, it's then work. As, as long as you're just writing because you have the joy of the story, I think you can you can do as much or as little as you want. So did you have this commissioned beforehand then? Did you, is that how it works? No, because I I don't know what it is. I, I, I sort of feel I wanted to finish it really and before I gave it around because uh, I saw I, you could never quite be sure how it's going to land at the end of the story and so on. I mean, you've got an idea, but then you want to make sure you can get there. And so I waited till I was finished, and then classic, the publisher, the editor wants a few things changed. And one of the things I learned about publishing now, which is really interesting, is that they're really obsessed with point of view. So in the olden days, I read Agatha Christie's a lot when I was a teenager, and she is the author, and she will describe you know, what they're both thinking, what he's thinking, and what she's wearing, and so on. Now they really want each chapter to be from the perspective of one of the characters. You can have the whole book from one person, you can have five people, but what you can't do is sort of switch and mix and match the whole time. And I, I think I was slightly in that vogue, so I had to, and it's quite a good discipline, is to separate out the characters and the characters' perspectives. And the reason that's quite good is I think in journalism, perspective is everything as well. You, you know, you realize that things look very different depending on what the angle is and what the point of view is. And, you know, we work on shows where you'll raise a topic, whether it's Brexit or Corona or masks in schools or shops or whatever, and you'll have suddenly incoming from all different sides. And you realize that there are so each individual thing has so many different perspectives. And I think uh, what I learned about, about writing from this novel was just that you that different perspectives are the crucial thing. You know, that this that this this act of doing a painting with a stuntman and the stuntman then refuses to pose and so on is seen differently from all the different characters. Yes. Yes, I, I love it. I think it's I think it's brilliant. And actually, you know, you talk about broadcasting and, and learning about all the different perspectives, you know, with the BBC and indeed on, on Channel Five with the show that you have there, you know, your your role is not really to have a perspective. It's to it's to enable each other's, isn't it? Well, it, it is, and it's a very difficult one. This, and it's one that's that's tortured all broadcasters for years. Is how can you have uh, values without having views? 
You know, the idea that we're just walking around as a blank slate and we don't feel anything about anything or anybody is obviously rubbish. And, you know, there are, there are crimes that we report which are horrendous and we can express that horror. But at the same time, you know, we don't want to go near allegiances in party politics or making a running commentary on events in the Middle East or whatever. So we have to stay aside from a lot of stuff and and particularly when you're doing a bulletin in a way is a cinch because you've got a script and you read it and the script has been checked by people and so on and you just mustn't start laughing during it but if you're doing a a really dynamic kind of discussion argument show trying to be in the middle of a subject can be quite difficult i think um you know, so, sometimes the temptation is to drift to the, the least popular side of the argument to support it, but then that gets difficult as well. So it's a, it's a daily challenge. But I always say to people that the, the, the ticket, the price of the ticket for just having the best job in the world is just I just mustn't really express too many views on things. And I suppose where, where the line is, it's so subtle. I, I'm against litter. But if I say I think Britain's hospitals are too dirty, that's political. So it's somewhere between those two positions, you know. Yes, it's a very, very tough one. And I don't envy you, actually, because, uh, you know, you have a voice, you have a platform and you have an audience who, who I'm sure would be so keen to, to almost follow your guide. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I doubt it. Cause I think back in the day, 30, 40 years ago, these people who were on TV and radio were gods. People like Richard Dimbleby. Now... Um, we're lucky to, you know, we, we, we're providing a service to people. We're lucky if people turn us on. We don't expect to be highly regarded anymore. <laughs> I don't think. I really don't. I think we, we're facilitators, you know, and I think if people choose us every day, that's great, but we are only one show away from the end of our careers. We all know that. That's very interesting to hear you say that, Jeremy, because I, I would suggest that you have a, a huge affection in the hearts of the public, and, and I, I think you're one of the rare broadcasters out there that does have this, you know, I, I'm not aware of any kind of negative voices around you. There are some presenters you know kind of divide opinion. Everyone just seems to love you. Oh, my goodness. I've never, I, I, that's so kind of you. I'm going to just remember you saying that because that, and there are times when I open Twitter and I see, and it's like an open sewer, and I just think, oh, my goodness. I mean, just today, for example, you can look this up. I just tweeted that I got this, this fruit uh, packet from Marks & Spencer, and it was something like uh, peach and raspberry and grape, but then they put jelly in it, right, bits of jelly. <laughs> And I tweeted, completely innocently, I tweeted, okay, I have finished it, but Marks and Spencer's, why do you need to put children's party jelly in a serious bowl of fruit? And I, I thought no more about it until I checked it in with it half an hour ago. And I just got 100 messages of abuse. If you don't like it, you shouldn't have bought it, you idiot. And stuff wow. like that. Wow. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Yeah, you can. This country is like every single person is having an argument with themselves all the time. And I, in a funny way, I think I love that because I think that us having an argument over nothing, over the garden fence, is the alternative to fighting. And I think that radio shows where you have a, a good old argument, a good old Barney and shake hands at the end, are probably the solution to most of our daily stresses. But it does feel a bit odd when you suddenly walk into an argument yourself over fruit and jelly. I mean, really? Yeah.
Yeah, but Jeremy, let's be fair. It's because you said Marks and Spencers. You should have gone Tesco's or Lidl. I should have. You know? You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, because then you get you think you're made of money, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I think one of the great things, and in all seriousness, for a broadcaster now is the return path, as they call it, which is if I – and I am very active on social media, so I do believe – I almost think I've got a responsibility to be on it, just to hear – what people are saying to me, you know, I've got an email address on my show and you can, you can email my show, but that's quite an old clunky way of doing it. And I might not see it, but if you tweet me, I'll definitely see it a hundred percent. And I'll almost certainly reply if it's sending, you know, a pleasant inquiry or a comment or, you know, actually even a negative comment. I heard somebody said, a couple of days ago, you put out a rubbish show every day for the last 10 years. And I, I just said, thank you for listening. Um, <laughs> yeah, every day for 10 but, years, he's still checked. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still, he's still listening. Yeah. It's brilliant. But I think the return path, the ability of the listener, the viewer, your listener, my listener, my viewer, to come back to us is so precious. And we should never complain about it, actually. No, good for you. Good for you. I, you're far more resilient than I am. I, I had some abuse on Twitter, and I was like, yeah, no, not into it. I'll, uh, I'll go and do Oh, some- really? Did you? Oh, well, that's interesting, yeah. I'll it's good. No, I'll tell you what. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I do have a lot of sympathy with that. The, the humour is, is brilliant, but it just verges into the vicious all the time. And I think if you... There was that lawyer who clubbed a fox to death on Christmas Eve. Do you remember that? And he came out into his garden and I think a fox was caught in his... It didn't help it was cricket nets or something. And he beat it to death. Um, and then he put it on Twitter. He just said, I've just beaten the, de- the fox to death in my garden. How's your Christmas been? And he, he was virtually driven off Twitter by about 250,000 people saying, you absolute brute. And I think he's only just resurfaced. So it's quite important to be respectful of the sheer tidal power of that medium and yes. to be careful you know, about what you say and what you take in. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um- but I love the. I was going to say I love. I mean, the, on the upside, because I hate to end on a negative about Twitter. When um, well, I think the death of Mrs. Thatcher coincided with the resignation of Alex Ferguson as Man U manager, and someone tweeted, "Thatcher dies, Alex Ferguson resigns. Somewhere in Liverpool, there's a scouser with a magic lamp and only one wish left." <laughs> and I thought, "Oh, that's brilliant." That's gold. And then there was. Yeah, someone someone tweeted, Mafia are getting lazy. I just woke up to find half a Findus beef lasagna in my bed <laughs> over the whole horse meat scandal. And I think that's what I'm on for. It's just that moment of total genius. Well, those could be from your brother, Tim. You know, he's... he's, he's well, yes. He's the sort of king of that wit, isn't he, really? He, yeah, I don't know. He he doesn't do topical so much, actually. He would be much more escapism and wordplay and if you go to one of Tim's gigs and I'm, I'm, I'm always so chuffed when I go to one because I see he sells out everywhere when we're not in corona times but it's uh, you can guarantee it will just be pure silly and there's something in all of us that really needs that and it went out it's interestingly it went out of fashion for, for quite a while the 80s and 90s where all comedy was political and everything and Tim just got caught a thing of just telling jokes set up punchline velcro what a rip off and <laughs> it just has been brilliant and I'm so proud of him because to make a living to feed yourself from comedy is not easy yeah yeah toughest gig in the world yeah, really. I think it, it, being a poet would run it close, but I think being a comedian, <laughs> being a journalist is the easy end of the arts I industry. Feel, and being, 
the next time we speak, Jeremy, you're going to have released a, a book of sonnets or something because, you know, I've... <laughs> yeah, you're right. I'm talking too much about poetry. Yeah, you're right. I... <laughs> yeah. It's an itch you need to scratch by the sound of things. Indeed. It sounds like it is. Maybe there's something subconscious going on there. There's a book waiting to come out. You should call it Falling. Yeah, I could. I, I do think if you, I did think about how to write bad poetry would be quite a good book. That everyone should write uh, one poem, and everyone should be forced to read one poem by somebody else, and that would make the whole world a better place. <laughs> or it would eliminate poetry altogether. That's or it might be the end of it. You're quite right. <laughs> I mean, there's only one way to find out. That's uh, I'll leave that in your hands, <laughs> um, Jeremy. Listen, you, you know the show is called Driven. You you are so motivated. You've achieved so much in your life. What is it when you get up in the morning? What is it that drives you? What drives Jeremy Vine? Um, when I became a dad in the early 2000s, I found myself flip quite surprisingly into hunter-gatherer mode, and I thought, oh my goodness, suddenly it, it's all on me. I don't feel that quite so strongly now. I just had, at the time, I remember thinking, oh, this is a primal thing. You know, I've got to leave the house because otherwise, you know, unless my wife and I work, they're not going to eat. Um, now, I just, to be honest with you, Joy, actually, I think... If you do stuff because you love it, you're going to be good at it. And I think that uh, I've, I was once talking to the newsreader, Anna Ford, to drop a name. And I said, uh, we're, this is not a bad job for, for, for us, is it? I'm doing this and you're doing that. And she fixed me with this very serious stare. And she said, Jeremy, we are the luckiest people in the history of the world. And I've always remembered that. And I've thought, you know, yeah, um, I think just to be able to get up and cycle into work and Talk, turn on a microphone and talk to people is the most beautiful experience. So that's that's what motivates me, the sheer joy of doing it. Brilliant, brilliant. What a lovely way to finish. Jeremy, thank you so much for your company. It's, it's been an absolute joy. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much. For me too, Andy. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And the book is great. The Diver and the Lover by Jeremy Vine. I mean, I need to see what happens. It's as simple as that. I'm 50 pages <laughs> in. I need to finish this book. So that's how good it is. Um, Jeremy, thank you. Have a wonderful continuation of your day and uh, I look forward to catching up again soon. You take care, Andy. Thanks. All the best. Bye-bye. Driven with Andy J. You're listening to Driven here on Talk Radio with me, Andy J, the show that talks to celebrities and achievers about what drives them. And I'm delighted to say I'm sat in the resplendent kitchen of the wonderful Charlie Borman. Charlie, how are you today? You okay? <laughs> it's very kind of you to, to, to be so nice about my house. Um, yeah, no, I, everything's, everything's pretty good at, at the moment. I mean, there's, there's um, you know... Uh, that could be could be it could be much worse so so <laughs> uh, mind you it can't get much worse these days can it you know with all the lockdowns and everything but you know well, i think one of the great things about 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 that is 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 you know um especially during lockdown and stuff was was being able to sort of get get out and and either on a bicycle or or on my motorbike and 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 kind of it's very it's very i find it very therapeutic for the for the mind you know when you're all stuck somewhere and you know you need to breathe and you need to you need to get out you, mm. need, you need to jump on a motorbike and, and 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 off you go and and um put your helmet on you forget about the world i mean your relationship with bikes is is known across the world for all the various biking adventures the the long way trilogy as we would call them now obviously down and up <laughs> and round and um obviously everybody knows you can get out on a bike and do it but but there was a long time two years where you couldn't because of a horrific accident i think it was 2016 yeah which almost lost you a leg 
and you had to relearn how to walk, etc. So during that time, I mean, that must have been, well, what was it like? I don't want to make any assumptions, <laughs> you know, kind of been a laugh. No, it was very painful. Um, it, and unfortunately, when, it, when I had the crash in Portugal, I was doing some work for Triumph. We were launching a, a new, a new, uh, a new uh, adventure motorcycle. Yeah. And, and instead of launching the bike, I, instead of launching the, 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 the model, I kind of, Actually, well, well, the, the, one of the good things that came out of this crash was was that was that I was the first person to destroy that particular model. So I've <laughs> you're got not that a crash test, yeah. Charlie. That's the. I mean, you know, but um, but I think I, I remember sort of flying through the air um, and heading towards this very big um, uh, pavement curb and 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 this wall and and thinking, well, lots of really bad words I can't say, and and then thinking, well, this is going to hurt. And and then I glanced my butt cheek on the on the on the um, on the pavement curb, and then hit this wall. And 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 you know when when people say, oh, you know, it, it hit me. I got hit. It was hit so hard that that my teeth rattled or yeah. or something. That's what it felt like. It was this unbelievable uh, thud, and it happened about two or three times. And then I stopped. And then of course when you if you ride a motorbike, um, you. Uh, uh, when you fall off, your first thing to do is jump on, jump up and pick it up and get back on the bike and just and so when your friends ride past, they just pretend nothing's happened, you know. <laughs> and they go, "What's all that bit hanging off your bike? Nothing, <laughs> you know." But um, and and then I I tried to get up and 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 um, tried to walk on my leg, and then I realized on my bottom of my left leg on my shin, um, it was it was sort of almost it was only held on by the by the muscle on you know oh, by gosh. the calf muscle, and it was just flopping around. Oh no! There was blood everywhere, and so I kind of sat back down again and thought, "Well, this is not good." Um, and then, and then I realised I'd broken my my left my right ankle, and dislocated it really badly as well. And then, and broke you're my completely hand. conscious at this. Point. Yeah, the whole time, Jeez. and was just really unfortunate. And then they, you know, they had to pull my leg straight in in, in before transporting me to to, to hospital and stuff because you don't want the bones to to grind against each other because they might hit a main artery or something. And then I did my hand as well, and and um and I think um uh, it wasn't really, and then I spent nine hours in a in a gurney with with a neck brace and strapped in, um while they got doctors together to to do this because it was quite a complicated operation. Yeah. And um and again you're awake for all of this. Yeah, all of that, oh, and man. and then they're not giving you any water and because you're about to go into the operation, they don't know when you're going in, you know, so they can't do anything for you, and and limited painkillers because you're going to have a um. You know, anesthetic yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So, and it's, and so, are you communicating with people at this? Yeah, point just chatting away to people and stuff. Yeah, and and it was all quite fine. I think if I, well, as long as I stood still or lay still, yeah, <laughs> it didn't hurt. But um, but it wasn't until the next morning I woke up the next morning, and it, I think it was like a six-hour operation or something like that. And it wasn't until the morning that I kind of woke up in this hotel, in this hospital room, hotel room. <laughs> That's a nice hospital. hospital. And that yeah. would be a nice hospital. It was a hospital in Portugal, um, in, on the Algarve, and and and, um, and I looked at, at, at my body, and, and and both my legs were in plaster. And my right hand was was in plaster, and 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 I thought, Christ, this is um, this is not good. No. You know, this is bad, and 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 I could only sort of use my left hand, and and everything else was quite painful, and and then and then I looked next door, and th- th- I realised that there was someone in the room with me. And 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 um, I I looked and there was another guy in bed and he was really bad, 
and and um and I, I looked at him and, and then I looked at myself and I actually became quite cheery about myself. <laughs> I started wow. to laugh and I started to think, well actually this is not so bad. Wow. <laughs> I think I got away with it. And the surgeon had said, um the surgeon had said, um, you know, he said, Charlie, I, I'm just a glorified carpenter and, and all I've done is just put your legs back together and he said, the rest is up to you. No. Uh, but he said, but that's, but that's it. And, 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 and so from that point on, I thought, you know what, I, I, I've got away with this and, and not really realizing how long it would actually take because the, you know, doctors tell you, Oh yeah, I'm going to do an operation. You'll be up and walking around in, in a few days. Well, that's just rubbish. And, and it just, it took, it took a long, long, long time, it took two years really to walk sort of properly. Um, and to be able to go back to the gym and exercise, um, and it was it was difficult. I mean, I, you can see my house here. I was sleeping in a bed, just in the in 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 the back room there, and and you know I was I had a bedpan for months and months and months. And and, and my first goal was to um, was just to get onto a toilet, oh, wow. and and just so I could do number twos in in, yeah. in the normal way. And that was yeah. my focus, you know. Apart from the the motorcycles, which were just sitting out front, which you saw them, yeah, and and that was a huge focus as well. Really, and, you, and you were thinking about getting back on the bike. Yeah, I I, I think that was the that was the, the goal, the aim. That was my that was that was my therapy, uh, and the drive to do physio was to get back on a motorbike. And uh, that's amazing, given that the bike was. I mean, I know the bike wasn't responsible for the accident. Yeah, sure. There was a person involved, and you know the, the car, etc. But nonetheless. It was as a result of being on it. If you hadn't been on a bike, you wouldn't have had the accident. Yeah, so. for sure. But, but you know, it's a bit like if, if people are passionate about horse riding. Most people are passionate about horse riding will tell you that they've broken something or, or something. If you ride motorbikes or s climbers, surfers, whatever it is, they've all had big damage. Um, and, and so that's just part of it. And, and, you, know, the, and it, you know, the thought of not being able to be on a motorbike again would just be... Uh, Awful. I, I remember um, when my right ankle was start. I could start to load on my right ankle, so I could sort of walk with crutches. Um, and uh, actually, funny enough, my 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 physio said to me, he said, "Look, Charlie, I think what you need is you need a Zimmer frame, okay, in order to walk around." Which is quite a depressing thing to say. It's like really, there's it gone that Thanks bad, that. you know. Yeah. Anyway, so um, he said, "Would you like to buy one?" And and he and he said, "I've got this one for sale." I said, "No, no, I'll, that's right, I'll get it on." On eBay, much cheaper. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm not going to spend money on, a, on a, I'm not going to spend money on a Zimmer frame. So um, anyway, this 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 Zimmer frame arrived, and and I got it out the the thing, and and I started laughing, and I and I got my wife Olivia to come. I said, "Oh, you got to look at this," and 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 I was standing up, and and the Zimmer frame only came to my knees. <sighs> And it was a kid's <laughs> Zimmer frame. So oh, man. <laughs> you should have bought the original yeah. one. For, for 18 quid, I suppose. <laughs> what do you expect? But, um, uh, and then, and then I, I, all this, at, at this time, we just opened up uh, a restaurant in, in Shoreditch called The Bike Shed. Yeah. And which is a really cool place. It's kind of like the Shoreditch house or Soho house for, for people who like motorcycles. And, and um, a really cool place. So I was trying to get up and down there and, 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 and help with it all. And so what I, I, I realized, because I had this big cage around my leg, so it's like a, like a scaffolding that goes around your leg and all these wires that go through your, your leg to hold it all together. And, um, uh, and so I couldn't ride the motorbike because, because the frame was in the way, so I couldn't change gear because I couldn't get my leg close enough to the bike. But my wife's scooter 
obviously it's just twist and go. So, yeah. so I would I would get on that and and put my crutches in between my arms and and I would ride up to North London, and but but I didn't have the strength when I got off. I didn't have the strength to be able to put the bike on the center stand. I just my legs just didn't have have the strength. So I would come up and I'd beat my horn, and someone from from the bike shed would come yeah. out. And take the bike a bit like you know, a bit like a professional motorcycle racer, like Valentino Rossi. Yeah, yeah. And they'd take the bike, and I'd sort of hobble off of my crutches into the thing, and they'd put it on the stand and give me the key. <laughs> and that was, um, and that and that was and that was it. That was a focus, and 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 part of it as well is because it's my job. So yes, I see what you mean. But I'm I'm still. I mean, you probably are reading my expression. I'm looking at you, thinking, how on earth are you getting through this? You know, mentally and physically. I mean, we saw glimpses, and you obviously allowed. You gave permission on on, on the long way up. There were glimpses of of your recovery. Yeah. You know, we see that I think in in episode one, where we hear the backstory about about what had happened, part of the reason for, you know, the the, the kind of time lag, etc. In, in in between the series, and I, you know, and you you just look, if you don't mind me saying, you look so broken. Yeah, no, you know, it was well. It was bad. I mean, that was bad. The first crash was bad, and then uh, after two years, when I started riding again, I was I do these motorcycle tours in Africa. Yeah, I take a bunch of people up from Cape Town to Victoria Falls, all through Namibia and Botswana, Zimbabwe and stuff. And it's it's great fun, and and it's lovely to introduce people to Africa. People are nervous of Africa, and it's not anywhere near as bad as people think. Um, uh, and then I had another huge crash. Yeah, there. And and that one was almost worse than uh, than the first one, and um, I don't remember any of that. I, I woke up eighteen hours later um, uh, in intensive care with big head injury and uh, brain bleeds and, and broken collarbone and broken pelvis and and sna- I snapped my my left forearm in half and bent it backwards and, <sighs> and all the bones came out again and and you know and all snapped all the tendons and. And it was it was pretty bad that one. And um, so you're mostly Tin Man. Then. Yeah. Well, you know, I I, I give I give um, uh, Barry Sheen a run for his money because <laughs> he had a lot of metal as well. But but um, and so I remember when I when someone contacted my wife because I was out of it, um, uh, and and she she was she was you know upset but mostly pissed off about uh, <laughs> about the fact that I can you see, I can't believe it. anyway. So that and then that, so then I was back here. Um, you know, back in a, in a wheelchair and back um, stuck in bed, and 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 it was just that was hardest to take because I had a terrible concussion from that, and and that took six or eight months to yeah to go through. I couldn't drive, couldn't ride a motorbike, or couldn't ride a motorbike anyway. Because and then I was walking around on my pelvis. We'd missed the fact that I broke my pelvis, so I'd, I'd been walking around on this broken pelvis. Um, and one of the doctors said, he said, you know, you're very lucky. Um, that um, you're very lucky that that uh, um, you know because what happens with a broken pelvis is if it's broken and if you put the weight on it the wrong way, your leg can shoot up through your body. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine it going this, through your lungs and then you yeah. like yeah, you know, oh, hey, hey, you can hop. So, look at this. So I had a, I had two plates put in my left um my left forearm and a plate put on my pelvis and a plate put on my on my collarbone and then that was a whole and just at that time we were just starting to do long way up and 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 not telling anybody that um i'd had this second crash and uh and just pretending that everything was okay 
How do you? I so, mean, have you, have you got the, the sort of pain management of a hero? Is your pain threshold non-existent these days, or are you? Do you feel? Because your body must feel very different now to how it did yeah. last year, two years ago, four years ago. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's painful. It's still very painful. My right ankle's still really bad. So that that's the last, the last thing at night I think about is the throbbing in my ankle, and then I wake up in the morning and it, it's it's there. Luckily, it doesn't affect my sleep really too much. Right. But um, but you know, I mean, I th- I think the whole thing about if you have a trauma, and I think. You, you, you fall into obviously you fall into different categories of of what happens when you have a trauma, um, and and you know whatever that trauma is, you you, you know you, you, it, at that point it's very it's very important to 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 let that go. You can't change mm. what happened. You can't say if only I'd left the hotel five minutes before or two minutes later or whatever it was, and 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 wishing that it hadn't happened. The fact is that it did. You can't change that so the thing to do is to leave that behind and and go forward right. and, and say well okay whatever's happened happened and and you know and and i'm not going to let that trauma define me That's or let it define it. yeah let it take over me i'm gonna i'm gonna own it and and uh, and move forward it's sort of i mean you know without getting kind of mental health route because i'm not a psychologist but it, it sounds very much like you because of these incidents and and what's happened to you, you very much have that approach of living in the now, which apparently is the secret to happiness. I don't know. Does that work? I don't, are you, are I don't you happy? Know. Yeah, I'm so miserable. No, uh, I I suppose so. I I, I think I've, I, it, it's you can't. I suppose you can't. Um, you can't do anything about what's just happened. Um, you 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 have some influence on on what goes on ahead, but. But you know, you're you're. It's really you know. We don't really know what happens in the future either, yeah. and yeah. And I think I think to live in the present is a is a good idea. I, 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 it works for me. Um, but then you know, there's people out there who love a plan, and and you know, I can't plan for next week or tomorrow. Like I, I just don't have the ability. Probably just as well by the sound of things. Yeah, you know things. I mean, I had, when you guys texted me, I com- had completely forgotten that it was happening today. Really? So I, I scrabbled around thinking, "Shit, okay, I've got to get my act together here." <laughs> <And> <laughs> well, you've been so accommodating; it's been amazing. But you know, this wasn't. A, I'm sorry to kind of pull up past traumas because I do yeah. want to celebrate your amazing achievements as well. But, but all of this, in my opinion, is amazing. The survival, the, sure. the kind of the battle, the the mental toughness that you've applied because. You know, prior to these accidents, you also had your own quite significant health scare, which was testicular cancer, which, yeah. y- you know, you took on and, and obviously beat. But that can't have been fun either, because that was when you were a, I don't mean to describe you as an old man now, because mm. you and I are very similar in age, but that was when you are really quite young and sprightly. Yep. You know, to be, to be hit with something, the cancer at, at your age then, it's not, it's not a common thing, is it? Or at least it wasn't. Um, Movember, I think, has highlighted that actually it is a lot more common than people realise. But, yep. but nonetheless, it must have been a shock. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was. I mean, I, I'd um, uh, about 23 years ago, my sister Talsha, um, my oldest sister, um, had ovarian cancer, okay. and, and and she uh, she didn't make it, and she had I'm a sorry. she had a terrible terrible time with it, and that year of, you know. Was as everybody tries to so my coffee machine. It's 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 a very it's a very nice coffee machine, but but she's very precious. She is, is that the one that was? <laughs> she just wants us to tell us that actually I'm still here, you know. <laughs> but um, so my sister 
Chelsea, she she got ovarian cancer, and um and it, it was you know it was that the last year was awful, mm-hmm. and and you know we tried everything, as you do to 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 try and make it happen, and 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 it and 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 it didn't work, and and so, and that's a, a awful for, to lose a, a sister or a sibling or, yeah. or and and I think awful for the for the for the for the brothers and sisters, but but for your parents, I I just can't imagine what it would be like to lose a, a child as mm-hmm. as a parent and and um anyway so so you know years later um you know I, I i have to sort of really thank my dog ziggy for uh and my wife for 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 um uh getting diagnosis because my wife took took um uh ziggy our first dog to the vets and 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 um and he was checking the dog and the last thing he checked was his nuts and uh, and he checked one of these. He said, "Well, one of these nuts feels a bit strange." And my wife said, "Christ, one of my husband's nuts feels a bit strange." And he, and, and she said, "Oh, <laughs> she said, I know, I know, but it is funny." And he said, "Oh, you should definitely get that checked out." <laughs> so she that. goes back. Oh my. She goes back and she says, "Look, Charlie, you got to get this checked out. You know, this yeah. nut is not Mind you, it's right." A sign you know. of a very strong marriage. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's so nice that she knows my nuts so well. But um, uh, so so I rang I rang the I got an appointment and then and that was at the beginning of 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 dozens of people grabbing your nuts and well and, i mean and i mean you know <laughs> I, th- there was at least there's a positive side to some this. people get paid for that so some Charlie, people get paid so, for that exactly you know. so um and then he then he said you've got to get this stuff sorted out you've got to um uh you're going to have a a, a, a scan a um an ultrasound yeah. that's how yeah, yeah. that's how you you check, check the nuts Anyway, so as usual, as a bloke, I just sort of, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I went home, did nothing about it. Anyway, the next morning at 8.30 in the morning, the doctor rang me. And, and well, bearing in mind, I've been with this doctor for 20 years, and they'd never rung me in 20 years. And then he personally rings me, and he says, have you booked an appointment yet? I said, no, but I'm going to do it right now. Yeah. And then suddenly, I found myself a week later lying on the operating table and the surgeon looking at me and saying, saying to me, and this is what he said to me, he said, he said don't worry, Charlie, it's just like shelling peas. <laughs> <laughs> that is not reassuring on any <laughs> level. <laughs> and then he, then he made the, and then he got, he got me really confused because he said, would you like a false one put in there? Well, a, a false one. Like ball. a false nut. Oh. And, and I said, you, what? <laughs> I said, you can do that? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got these little silicon things that you can slide in there. And I said, well, is it, uh, is it popular? I mean, does it happen a lot? And he yeah. goes, and then I was hoping he would sort of say, you know, 75% of people say yes yeah. or no, Most right? So it's an easy, yeah. an easy choice. And he goes, yeah, what about 50-50? And I was like, oh, man. I can't, I can't decide on that. Anyway, I decided to have one put in. And, uh, and my wife said, you know, you're going to have one put in, but as long as it's bigger than the last. <laughs> but uh, so she, um, uh, so I had it put in, but but it was the worst decision I'd ever made. And, and I would advise anybody, in a more serious note, I advise anybody not to, if you're going to lose a nut, just lose the nut. Just don't, lose it. Because it's attached to your ball bag, not, so normally a, a, if a ball, so if you go and do motocross or do something, extreme your 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 little nuts will, will lift up out the way and 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 that's kind of what happens but on on this on this silicon one it's it's attached to your to your ball bag so 
it actually gets in the way. So <laughs> that's brilliant. So it's like it's, it's don't just, mind me. It's, I've just got a massive extra yeah, nut. I just I'm just sitting on this nut. And then I remember going to the Dead Sea once with my wife and children, and and I swimming like and it kept flipping me over because <laughs> this thing would just go to the surface. Anyway, um, <laughs> at least you'll never but, drown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but then everyone keeps clinging to you for, for life, you know. But um, uh, I but, think I'd get a chip and pin put in mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a good party trick because you can just flick it. But um, it, 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 it's. Uh, but but you know, and, and then I mean, having said all that, you know, and I, I remember when they first said, you know, you, you, I think you after all the tests, they said that we think you've got it. Um, and uh, and they go, but as tests as 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 cancers go, it's the best one to have, right? Because it's one of the most treatable. Yeah. So you know, I got that going for me as well. Yeah. So, um, but then you, you know, but while I was waiting to hear whether or not I had it, all I had was these memories of my sister, right, and what she'd been through. Yeah. And um, and and it's a very uh, it can be a very quite dark place when you're sitting there at night. It's usually at night when I was recuperating from my accidents as well. You know, late at night you wake up with pain or with whatever it was, and and you know you're left just lying there in the darkness. Mm. And that's I think when lots of people have you know struggle with it. And and um, and I just remember sitting there, and I'm, 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 I remember, and then for them finally saying yes, you know, you've got it. But listen, and and, and the doctor was really nice he, 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 with the Marsden, and they just they were lovely. The Royal Marsden, the Royal yeah. Marsden, and they were they were they were brilliant. And 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 he said, look, Charlie, it's it's the, you know, with and I know your sister had a terrible time, but he said, he said this one is a is just an inconvenience. It's not a okay. It's not a game changer. And he said, let's just let's just work at it like that and, and and then we went through it like that and then he took my nut off yeah and gave you a massive and gave me a massive one that you know just gets in the way with everything you know <laughs> give you an inflatable <laughs> yeah. if, if you're on a ship you know it's sinking you go don't worry i've got my own inflatable yeah, i'll be fine yeah, yeah I'm, I'm good <laughs> i can prove it i, I, I just want to i mean look you open the door i hope you don't mind me asking because i um have a similar uh, although different outcome my, my sister had cancer when yeah. we were growing up how old were you when when she well, Talsha, Talsha was, um, Talsha, uh, I was, um, that was 23 years ago. So my daughter, my first daughter, Dune, had just been born. Right. And, and luckily enough, Talsha met her okay. um, just before she, she, she passed away. Um, uh, so 23 years ago, Talsha was, was young and, and um, in her early 30s and left Daphne, my, my niece, left her behind, uh, uh, who was six at the time. Okay. And um, so uh, how's, how's she doing? She and it, Daphne's great. She's she's got little Leo, who's three, and she's just had Phoenix, a little a little another little boy, with Jamie, her husband. She's she's lovely. But but a few years later, uh, Daphne lost her father to um, lung cancer oh God. as well. So so poor little thing has 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 had a has had a rough old time. Mm. Um, but I remember when. When we did that, when we did Long Way Round, the first one that you and I did from London to New York. Yeah. Um, Which was like 16 years ago. Yeah, 16 now. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and and I remember, you know, because we'd had this newborn kid and then we had another kid 18 months later and then life got in the way and busy. And, you know, you never really had time to really think about your my sister. You know, life was just yeah. getting on. And then yeah. when we went on these trips, and this is part about being been on a motorbike and and th and that is there's a bit of therapy there you know if you okay. love driving cars or motorbikes or whatever it is um horse riding and and um i remember 
sitting on the bike for day day after day and 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 your mind starts to wander and you start thinking about things and and, and I would often think about Talsha and 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 uh, and it was it was lovely to be able to have the time to really sort of think about it and how interwoven your I mean I still have her telephone number on my phone yeah I can't seem to get rid of it and 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 you know every time I flick through I just can't do it mm. but um but that gave me a great it was it was a great healer for me to be able to and I would have a little cry in my helmet occasionally as well and yeah. and actually on this last trip so was, I, can, I have to apologize to you right now Charlie because I'm I'm welling up myself <laughs> I am actually well well, well you know we've all been there you know well not all of us but no, well, we have lots though, of people you know. have been there and 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 um and I remember I remember I've been super touched on this last trip with you and we were going through Chile in, in, in one place we came it was raining we came around this corner and there was this big double rainbow and come up and as we came around he goes oh look he said Talsha uh, must be looking down on us yes. and uh, that made me cry yeah it's making me <laughs> cry it made now. me cry now <laughs> yeah yeah no, we're both a couple of old men having a little <laughs> no, cry at a table no. but a anyway but, so, but I've <sighs> always been grateful for uh, my passion of motorbikes and, and it's always given me um, so much and and um, and uh, it, it's 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 you know, it's still something that I get excited about, and 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 enjoy. You yeah. know, I, oh, I'm completely flawed, mate. I'm really <laughs> sorry because I because you know I. The kind of mad thing is one of the reasons you know we're here to talk to you about motorbikes and whatnot for the Driven Chat podcast, and I I was really keen to discuss, have a quick chat with you about about life because I just feel like you're this remarkable survivor, and 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 you know I think we're six episodes into the to the long way up now because they're staggering it to yep. my great frustration because I want to binge it and see what <laughs> happens next and the cliffhangers at the end of every episode so irritating that we're going to wait another week, but it's also <laughs> brilliant and compelling. But I I know this sounds so soft and you're. Please forgive me for this daft phrase, yeah. but I wanted to check in with you. I've never met you before. We don't know each other, but I, I feel this closeness to you from watching all of the shows. I feel yeah. like, you know, we've, we've shared so much from your journey and, and this kind of knowledge that, that, you know, sort of came out of, I know you've done many, many, many TV shows in yeah. between with Dakar, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of your relationship with Ewan and, and going on the bikes and the long way trilogy, as I call them, which of course is what they are, um, you know, the, the 12-year absence, you know, I, and, and hearing about these accidents and things, I've sort of wanted to check, you know, I've <laughs> sort of wanted to have this, I know that sounds so selfish, but I personally wanted to ask you if you were all right, because, you know, there are moments when you sort yeah. of see that you're, you can tell you're in pain going over yeah. some of these non-road roads, and, and, you know, you can tell that some of the trip is, is fatiguing for you mentally as well as physically, Sure, and I get quite worried about you watching it <laughs> are you okay you know that's kind of all i wanted to that's say was well, are you all very right? good with the editing i suppose no, I, mean, I, th I think there were a lot of moments i think i needed to do this mm. trip and and i needed to prove to myself that it's a really was only last august really that i because of these two accidents and stuff it's only last august really that i could that i could get back to the to training kind of sort of getting physically fit again yeah and and i'm still struggling with uh, muscles and my legs I still find it difficult but you know on, on the whole I'm, I'm I'm because of being able to do this trip and being able to have done it and and we did it on electric motorcycles and and and, and there was a big challenge and stuff like that and 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 it was the biggest challenge was whether or not for me whether or not I could do it yeah and and would I be able to to do the whole thing and and sure there were days when 
I thought, you know, uh, that it was almost too much. Uh, but, you know, but I, I, it's, it's one of those things that I, I did the Dakar rally a number of years ago in 2006. And, and that was a brutal off-road race and, and super dangerous race. And actually, in that one, I broke my hands. I was going to say, you, you, you kind of had a challenge <laughs> a, with that as well. There's a theme going yeah. along there. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but that one was, and there were times when I, um, uh, when I wanted to give up, you know, and, and stop halfway through the day because you're doing 800 kilometers a day off-road. And, yeah, it's and brutal. It's brutal. And, and then you say, well, you know, then you say, well, actually, I'll just get to, the, to that hill and I'll see where I can go from there. And then you kind of just go step by step after that. And, and that's how I felt with, with Long Way Up mm -hmm. was I think that was the sort of icing on the cake to sort of say that I'm back. And, nice uh, and that I'm okay. Yeah, well, welcome you know. back. <laughs> it's nice to be. Yeah, it's, it's nice, and it's nice to get out and talk to talk to people and talk about experiences and and what you and I did um, on long way up and, and and stuff like that. And it's just lovely to sort of get out there and and be part of life again. Yeah, you know, it's important. It's good to see you, mate. Well, no, thank you. I'm calling you mate now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, like you're my best friend. <laughs> Not going to leave. I know where you live now. You're just going to be like, oh, oh, oh Andy's here no, again. He likes Andy, the coffee machine. Go yeah. away. <laughs> just get out of my house. Um, thank you very much. Ten minutes turned into thirty. Bless oh you. well, it's a pleasure. Brilliant. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Now, my next guest I'm very pleased to welcome is a man who is probably known to you for his uh, current appearance on Made in Chelsea, but there's a fair bit more to him as well. I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. Harvey Armstrong. How are you doing, Harvey? Good. Very good, thank you. Are you enjoying, because you're very new to Made in Chelsea, are you enjoying that being a, a kind of tag that comes with your name right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm yeah definitely the newbie. It's, it's better than being Habs' ex, that's what, where it all started. It was a really hard decision for me to actually go on the show to start with, because I was going back into a world where my ex existed more so than I did. Is that good for me mentally? Like, do I want to be in like her world as yeah. it was at the time? And sort of, I came from a very different background. I was sort of in accounting and the finance world, sort of worked quite hard through uni and got my sort of ACA quite early. And sort of that was my kind of path. And then I sort of deviated quite massively into sort of reality TV and now sort of entrepreneurism is where kind of like playing the two off each other. So it was a really tough, like, do I want to go for that sort of high risk, high reward, sort of entrepreneur life mixed with this reality TV stuff, or do I want to stick to sort of the finance world and climb the ladder and, you know, have a comfortable Well, that's life. exactly what I was going to ask you, because it was PricewaterhouseCoopers, wasn't it, that you, were, yeah. that you were attached to? And obviously, you've now gone into a reality show. Everybody's watching you. Every move you make, regardless of how they judge, how they edit you, is, is going to be judged by prospective employers. You know, mm. now you had a, a career that had a long lifespan ahead there. You know, yeah. you know what it will be like. You know what your day-to-day -day life will be like. But nonetheless, you know that you're going to be earning the sort of money that I expect you're wanting to earn, that, you know, you're planning. You fulfill your education, your degrees, etc. So, you know, you're, you're tapping into the skill set that you've been working towards your whole life up to this point to effectively gamble it on coming out well in a reality show. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's it's tough. It was tough and it was a, it was a gamble. It was the, the black and white of it, if, if I could sort of boil it down to the reason I did it is because I just, 
staying in the corporate life and the financial life, climbing that ladder, as you say, knowing what you're going to get and you know you're going to live a comfortable life, it just didn't excite me enough. Right. I sort of, I'm more of a high risk, high reward kind of guy. It's big stakes. Yeah, this. it was big stakes. It was tough. It was so hard. But I'm, I'm actually glad I did it. I think it's sort of the right decision. Um, yeah, I think sort of accounting life that I was in, it was a bit mundane for me. I like to sort of wake up with a bit more kind of excitement and also that same sort of equivalent fear that drives that sort of like determination. And that's kind of what I needed to get up in the morning when I knew that it was like, we could go in, but audit, basically I was doing audit and it's just like, it's just, it was dull. For me. You were bored. Yeah, I was bored. I was bored and it was just not enough. I'd rather kind of risk it all. And you know, in three, four years, if it doesn't work out, I can always fall back. Was it a tough one? But, but that's the question though, do you think you can? You know, would a big business like that take a reality star Seriously, and I don't mean to condescend you in that term, but you know that's what maybe yeah, no, Chelsea's see. I mean, that's one of the sort of main kind of um, factors that I considered when making the decision. Like that was tough, but I kind of convinced myself that you know if you sort of conduct yourself in a respectful manner, if you come across as a guy who's you know got his head screwed on and he's not like being the sort of stereotypical reality star, there should be no reason why an employee wouldn't look at you. You've got the qualifications, you've worked hard in, in the past, you've got what it takes, you know, to be employed by them. I assume there'll always be somebody out there who might look on it badly and there might always be someone who look on it positively yeah. and say, actually, you know what, you bring sort of some sort of client like benefits because some people look at the show and go, oh, that's a bad fit. And it can actually work as a positive sometimes. So. Yes, that's a fair way of looking at it. Yeah. If I were you in this situation, it would have been a strange conversation for me. What was it like telling your parents, right, I'm, I'm leaving that job, you know, you were really... Please, I've got this really big job that I've worked so hard to yeah, get. I'm, I'm doing that for a reality show. How was it telling them? Weirdly enough, they were the ones that kind of backed me doing it. Really? Yeah, because they, they knew that I wasn't like that happy doing sort of the accounting stuff and the corporate life and the ladder. And they knew that my aspirations, I think, as a young child, they've seen it from a young age, has been more than that. It's always been, it's like, make it big time or don't make it at all. It's not... It's not this sort of mundane like ladder. That's always been sort of my mindset, and they kind of knew that, and they sort of actually were the ones that pushed me and said, "Just believe in yourself, because if you go for it, you will actually hit that the stars that you're aiming for, as opposed to you know the moon that you could hit if you stayed within sort of the counter." And it was actually them who gave me the confidence to get up and do it. Now, after the break, my final guest this week recently received an MBE, and he's here to share some of his joy and his pearls of wisdom. It is, of course, Mr. Motivator. Driven with Andy J. Welcome back to Driven here on Talk Radio with me, Andy J, in association with Paramex Digital, proud creators of DrivenChat.com. Now, my goodness, if I could do a drum roll here, I would, because I am so thrilled to be able to welcome our next guest. Honestly, I'm genuinely elated and excited, and I've been looking forward to this moment for weeks. Mr. Motivator himself, yes! Round of applause, he's in the house. Absolutely, the world's greatest health and wellness coach. Hello, how are you doing, Mr. Derek Evans? How are you? I, you know what, I am so fabulous, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I looked in the mirror and the mirror just went, wow, as usual. <laughs> well, I, I, I wanna tell the listeners we can see each other. We're talking over a video link right now. And all hail to that, you are looking resplendent. You've got the most 
awesome headgear on right now, and I'm pleased to say a, uh, a vest top singlet. I'm, I'm currently being privy to the gun show. <laughs> you know something, the thing is, when you train every day and every minute when I'm sitting down, if I sit here for too long, I get up and do something. So you've got to dress for, for the occasion. There's no point in me sitting in a suit like you, mate. Mind you, you have a body for radio. <laughs> well, that's lockdown has certainly improved my body for radio. It's, <laughs> it's significantly bigger. And, yeah. you know, and, I, and I've been watching you and I've been doing my best, like Angela Rippon, to, to join you in. But even so, the, the fridge has been a, a huge temptation for me. And, and what can I do? It's... I know, you know, the thing is, it, it's been quite an interesting time. There's lots of people who look at it and go, oh, it's been horrible or whatever it is. But I think with everything, you've got to kind of turn it on its head. And the way I see it is, listen, you've locked me down. I've survived. I'm here. I'm now ready for the next thing that you're going to bring on. As far as I'm concerned, it's just a, just a hurricane and eventually blows over and we can get back to how things used to be. Driven with Andy J.